our backyards to the realities of the third world. We take a raw and real look into the challenges and the pursuits of social justice. Welcome to The Point. Our guest today is an author, a director, a founder, and a professor. He's lived and worked around the world in areas like Yugoslavia, Kosovo, India, Iran, Sierra Leone, and Haiti, where he's partnered with local communities, refugees, and nonprofits in all areas of social justice. Not only has he written three books, but his writing has also been showcased in publications like The Washington Post and Christianity Today. Currently, he's the Director of Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership at Wheaton College, where he's helping to create one of the first programs of its kind, all while taking time to share with us his story today that is sure to inspire you. Welcome to the show, Kent Annan. Welcome to the show. We have Ken Annan here. So excited to see him again. Thanks, Kelly. Great being with you. Yeah, it's so good to see you again. Well, I would just love um, to hear, I actually don't know the story about really how you got started and in, in the type of work you're doing and, and the type of work you were doing in Haiti. Um, did you grow up on the mission field? Did you grow up traveling the world or really what, what started you down this path? My, I think it's my parents. So my parents, my dad's a pastor, but they had like done some missions work before I was born. Um, they were in Japan. And then I grew up sort of like our church was pretty uh, diverse, kind of ethnically diverse. And we had missionaries coming through the house. And I never thought of it, you know, as I think it probably that wasn't the path I thought I was on because I wanted to do something different. And then in college, we had this a kind of family friend who said, okay, before you, I really wanted to do business and come do this, come do like a missions thing with us for two years before you do that. And so I went and worked with refugees right after undergrad, went and worked with refugees. I lived in England and France, traveled all over Europe, working with refugees. And it's like, it just changed the direction of my life, what I've done now for 27 years or something since then. And so it was I think it's that combination of work and it felt like really meaningful work. And then the friendships, you know, I was becoming friends with people from Sierra Leone where there was a conflict of Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia was breaking up. There was a guy from Sarajevo. And so it was doing work that felt meaningful, meeting people in really hard times. And then also um, becoming friends. I thought, oh yeah, this, this feels like a really meaningful way. So that, that kind of started the path. Was there ever any like a time where you thought to yourself, how how am I going to make money doing this? Or how, <laughs> yeah, like, how am I going like to the, like the last three or four days of every month when I was like <laughs> eating peanut butter and jelly? Um, yeah, I think that like that that was uh, something along the way, and like it was always you know always could make enough. I think I grew up in enough of a kind of ministry missions subculture that that felt fairly normal kind of within our tradition so it was a, a question early on i didn't see it as like my career path or something but i i did it for a couple of years and that worked and i came back for graduate school and then like the i think it was the day after graduation from graduate school i flew over and, and there was the war was happening in kosovo at the time so i was working in northern albania um with kosovo refugees and then in then into kosovo on the border 
opened up. So, you know, so all this, you know, it was still an adventure and figuring out what to do, but, you know, sort of felt like, oh, at least I can, you know, this can be a really meaningful. And also it seemed like I was able to keep on having enough to keep going month to month. So I was grateful. Absolutely. And so um, were you considering yourself like a missionary at that point, a humanitarian worker, or what, what was kind of the title you were going by? Yeah, it's a good, that's a good question. Like, I, I think in, when I look back on it, it was humanitarian work. And that's really what I've, uh, I've worked on, but it definitely in those, at least the first stage, it would have been kind of under the, like people would have said missionary work. I probably would have referred to it as that, but it was always this kind of the refugee focus and then refugee focus. And then, uh, and then came back for a couple of years and got married. And then we moved to Haiti and, you know, that was really a focus on education and justice issues. So, you know, so, uh, but I, I really, I kind of like that mix of thinking really rigorously about how to do this uh, Christianly and thinking about the theology of it, but then thinking about best practices of how, how we can do that work really well as humanitarians. So for me, the, yeah, it's been kind of a, a mix of the two for sure. Yeah, that that makes sense. I think for myself as well. Like, where do you where do you, if you're a Christian, you're doing any work, right? You're like, okay, mm -hmm. well, technically, yeah. I'm overseas. Am I an expat? Am I a missionary? Like, what is right? This? I think that that's a, brings up an interesting topic. So, uh, a lot of these conversations we have, and and I'm sure you have a similar experience where we might have an idea of what it would be like to live in another country or to do humanity humanitarian type of work. Um, to help people. Um, did you have an idea of what that looked like? And how did that compare to what the reality was when you started doing it? I think I had some idea just from family. And like I mentioned, like having missionaries coming through, staying at our home, um, presentations at church, like those kind of things. So there was like a basic narrative, I think that I uh, grew up with. I think um, this isn't quite your question, but it kind of relates. I think um, part of what I found when I was doing it is like in evangelical circles that I grew up in, like missionaries were sort of on a pedestal, almost like mm -hmm. pastors or something, but missionary was like the highest calling in a way. I don't think, I don't know if anyone would have said that right out. And, mm -hmm. um, but I, there was some of that. So I think part of the experience was going out there and knowing other missionaries and then mostly, and then knowing myself and my flaws and like how, you know, how imperfect and making mistakes and stumbling through a lot of these things. Um, and so I think that that's one of the differences. It's like, it's um, that I found, which isn't that surprising to anyone listening, but you know, it's like the difference between what the ideal is and then who I am or who all of us are, who are doing the work, how much there's stumbling, how much there are mistakes, you're wanting to help people, you hurt people, you're still selfish and all of that. So that, that's a lot of what, you know, I, I'd done some writing, I'd never written a book or anything, but I was doing that experience. We were first living in Haiti and uh, wrote my book, Following Jesus Through the Eye of the Needle. But I thought, okay, I'm going to write this about the experience, but I want to include like the 20% of things that most people, when they're missionaries, don't tell mm -hmm. others about. And I think over the last, you know, not that I've had to influence, I think that's become with blogging and social media, I think that's become more normal in the last 10 or 15 years. But when I was writing that, it felt like, okay, there's some of that, but a lot of people don't tell that 20% of, of, uh, of what happens. So yeah, so this is a long way around your your question, but I think it was kind of finding finding that finding that we're stumbling, we're learning along the way, and it was really important to be honest about that because kind of 
looking at other people and looking at myself, it's like, if you're honest about it, then you can keep growing and getting better at serving others. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, and you've seen these examples, I've seen them in Haiti and other places, you know, either you don't grow or it can become really toxic and you can just be, you know, people who don't do that, who try to stay in that ideal and aren't aware of their own blind spots, you know, can really be doing a lot of damage to others who are in vulnerable situations. Mm, yeah, I know that that's well said. It's almost like introspective of like less about larger systems and more about like what we learn about ourselves. And I, I definitely can relate to that. I think, you know, my story, like I just said before I became a Christian, I used to be like, oh, the pastor, you know, never says a bad word or, you know, mm -hmm. never has a bad right. thought or, you know, and definitely this idea before moving to Haiti of what I believed mission missionaries uh were and look like and then realizing like oh we're all just sinners and in fact when we're put into these situations um with very little accountability and lots of outside pressures like our sinful nature can absolutely increase and mag and be magnified right. exactly yeah and so we definitely you know owe it to ourselves and to those we're helping to try to be as self-aware as possible and get the healing because you're exactly right we we end up you know, hurting people more than, than helping a lot of times. So walk us through the path a little bit, the timeline. So you, you, I, I can't even remember all the countries you just said you went to, but you were quite, <laughs> quite busy. So how did you decide um, what country to go to next? And, and how did all of that work? Were you working for organizations specifically at that time? Or had you started your own thing? Yeah, I had, uh, went with an organization for the first two times when I was in like England and France, working in Europe. I came back for graduate school. Um, got to spend a summer, which was really influential and um, amazing in India uh, while I was in graduate school. And then graduation, my wife and I started dating my last semester. She was like a year behind me in the program. And then I thought we'd keep our dating life interesting by my moving to Albania and Kosovo in the midst of it. And, and like with bad internet and all like, you know, and phone calls from this kind of pay phone at the downtown post office with a really bad connection, trying to decide if we were going to stay together. There's some, it's almost, you know, funny now that we just passed our 20, 20th anniversary um, wow. that we made it. Through the Congratulations, time. Right? You look back and say, wow, yeah. we can make it through that. We can make it through it. There is an element to that. Like make it through that and then make it through like living in Haiti together. Like, you yeah. know, and you're like, okay, we can take the ups and downs of COVID. It's like we've been yeah. through harder oh, stuff. Absolutely. It's like a pressure cooker. That's why I say it. it's a yeah. pressure cooker. It's going to bring exactly. up whatever's inside. <laughs> yeah. So I had those kind of, but the main stints, like working with refugees in Europe and then working in, in Eastern Europe, like Albania and Kosovo, and then uh, came back. And that's when my wife and I, we were kind of figuring out what to do next. And it wasn't totally clear. I was feeling drawn to some work like this, but I wanted to do more development instead of like disaster. So I could kind of go deeper and learn language and learn culture. Shelly had never done anything like this. We were wrestling back and forth, but we were really grateful. And it seemed like God led us to moved to Haiti together. So we did, uh, you know, we got on a plane within 24 hours. We were living out in the countryside outside of Leogon, you know, moved right in with the family, uh, no running water, uh, barely any, they spoke, in, you know, we spoke no Creole. They spoke hardly any English and no electricity, the whole thing. And we lived in the home with them. And so we did that for the first seven months was kind of living with them, 
it was with the organization called Beyond Borders, and they were great kind of setting up this system. And so we did that for like seven months, and then we moved in closer to Port-au-Prince, uh, built a little tin-roofed house uh, up in the hillside outside of Port-au-Prince and lived there. So we lived there for two and a half years and then moved back to Florida. And then I was going back and forth to Haiti and the colleague and I started Haiti Partners uh, then. But then my focus was really um, Haiti for 14, 15 years. I'm not sure what the exact wow. timeline is, but, you know, where I was uh, lived there for two and a half years and, you know, maybe it was then another 10 or 12 years. I should figure out that timeline at some point, um, you know, but it was started Haiti this other end. Making time <laughs> exactly, yeah, but it was amazing. I, I loved it and still stay in touch, of course, with friends and colleagues down there and helping out a little bit with one organization and project that's uh doing work there. It was really, yeah, that's sort of my timeline until what I've been doing in the last few years. But I loved getting to do the work of learning Creole and having those relationships and. Uh, and doing the work, but in this way that felt um, that I'd missed my first two things that I'd done with refugees. And of course, that's the nature of working with refugee work because it's transient and people are moving through and how do you help in this vulnerable uh, moment? So yeah, I was real honored to get to uh, dive in. And then of course, along the way in Haiti, you know, it's like this long-term work and education and working on women's rights and children's rights and with churches all over the country. But then, you know, the earthquake happened in the midst of that. So that was this really intense you know, weeks and months and, you know, like the, the year after the earthquake as well. So jumping around in that timeline, that's sort of the, the basic, the basic path to what I was doing. <laughs> what year was the first time you touched down in Haiti? Do you remember? Uh, I th- what's were 2020s? I think it was like 2002 or 2003. Oh. We'd just been married for two years. Okay. So no kids yet. Um, no kids yet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the way I measure it. Yes. We, when we moved back, we were already thinking about transitioning back. And my daughter is 15. We were already thinking about transitioning back because it made sense for kind of the stage as NGO was that we were starting um, and kind of having this vision for. And then we um, and then my wife was having health problems, uh, kind of going back and forth. And we we're a Haitian doctor and eventually said, like, you need to go back. Uh, to that to uh, to make sure that she could uh, go through and the pregnancy would work out. So that's we moved back while we were pregnant with my daughter, Simone. When the earthquake happened in 2010, were you on the ground or were you in the states? I'd been there a few weeks before, and then um, I was back in the states. And my co- had, my closest colleague friend, Enel Angerville, uh, who I think you've met as well, maybe when we met, and he. Then he came up, he was up, and we went and spoke at a conference together. Uh, and then he stayed at my place and he went back, you know, and then it happened a couple weeks later. So, mm. and then I got, I went down one of the early humanitarian flights back into Port au Prince. I think it was, I think it was six days after uh, the earthquake, I got, got down to the country. Six days. Wow. What led you to, to start? the NGO rather than joining forces with one that already was in existence? 
We were with one that, that already existed with Beyond Borders, which was doing really good work, and they're still doing really good work. They especially focus on the rest of issue um, there in Haiti. And the main thing was, I think it just, our kind of the vision and number of things that we were doing geographically, the kinds of work, it would just got too spread out. And so it made sense to kind of launch this other uh, NGO that could be really focused on education with uh, with schools and churches. So our, our mission was you know, helping Haitians change Haiti through education. So it was just a need to, through growth, uh, and they're both both good organizations uh, doing good work today. But yeah, that was the main, the main impetus was, okay, how do we make sure that we have focus and we just aren't so spread out, you know, for organizations, mm-hmm. mission gets too spread out that it can do the work well, have the focus, be communicating well with donors, uh, developing the right expertise. So that was the main, the main driver. Mm-hmm. And Haiti Partners is still in existence today. Yep. Um, and do you want to talk a little bit about what it has been able to accomplish? Yeah, so uh, work with uh, schools, so seven different schools. I think they're still working with those schools down in Haiti, uh, which is really good. And then the other uh, part that we did, I focused programmatically more on the churches side. And so the churches part of uh, Haiti Partners actually spun out a couple of years ago, and they're part of uh, this group called DAI, or Development Associates International, which is a great organization. They work in over 20 countries around the world on education. So they have a master's degree program. So we helped launch that in Haiti. So there's this new master's in organizational leadership and a new cohort just started last week or sometime in the last month, the new cohort started with something like 37 students. So it's the only master's degree of its kind in Haiti, really affordable, great content. And then they also do lots of grassroots uh, training as well with churches. So that DAI Haiti, it's locally in Haiti, it's called FOCA. Uh, I love getting to be part of that. And I think what it, what we accomplished, especially in that work with churches, which was helping to give this more holistic vision of what churches could do. So it's the spiritual, obviously, in relationship with Christ and with God is central to the church's mission, but also um, loving vulnerable neighbors is central to the mission of the church and so i think i think we were able to help develop curriculum to help deepen people's spiritual lives but then we also were able to help churches move into the areas of thinking about women's rights and children's rights and local environmental issues and so yeah really was really grateful to learn a ton from haitian colleagues and then to work with haitian colleagues to uh to help facilitate churches kind of stepping into those other parts of their mission yeah, that's incredible. I I have always admired the work that has been happening there. Um, so you are now the director of humanitarian and disaster leadership at Wheaton College. It's a lot of it's a lot of syllables. <laughs> it's a lot of things happening. Uh, <laughs> we should make an acronym. Uh, is there an acronym? <laughs> yeah, HD, HDL is the master <laughs> program. So that's, that's the way we get through. <laughs> uh, so, so you landed in Haiti not long at all after the earthquake happened. And, and I've said on prior podcasts that Haiti was kind of labeled the, the Republic of NGOs. And, you know, there was a lot of um, foreign aid, disaster relief. I myself hadn't gone, uh, first time was in 2011. So it was at least a year um, and a few months after the earthquake. Um, but you, I'm sure, had a very different experience. Is that what led kind of to where you're at now or what, what was the bridge there? I think the main, like I would, I would have been happy and I still want to stay involved with Haiti for the rest of my life. Um, 
But the bridge was talking with this colleague, Jamie Ayton, who had the vision for starting this master's program. He's the founder of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute here at Wheaton College. And he had this vision of starting a master's in humanitarian and disaster leadership. And so he told me the idea, I don't know, like five years ago, maybe five or six years ago. And I loved it. I said, oh, like, let me let me know if I can help with that. I just love the idea of, you know, like what you're doing, what other people we know are doing, people listening, like, how do people go into this kind of work in a way that's really faithful, but also really research-based and best practices and in the most thoughtful way possible. And bringing those two together, I think is pretty unique in this space of having, you know, a really rigorous approach to faith and a really rigorous approach to development work, disaster work and everything. So, so he told me the idea and I, I loved it. We had actually met in Haiti uh, for the first, the first time we met and kept in conversation. And then the conversation went from, oh, here's some ideas. Oh, oh, that's, I like that to, you know, would I be interested in being part of launching this? And it just felt like the perfect time and thought, man, if I could help work with the next generation of uh, people, uh, next generation, and some are, some are young, some are older, um, who are doing this kind of work, it just felt like it would be a real honor and place to be to help prepare them to do the work. It also serves as a think tank. So we're trying to take the best practices and do research and think about what we're, what's happening all over the world to help churches and NGOs to serve well. So it just felt like this step of, oh, I've been so focused mm-hmm. in, but I always enjoyed writing and speaking. So I was trying to keep, have this kind of broader view as well. So then the chance to, you know, help, help students get ready to do this kind of work well and keep learning from them and hopefully helping them to learn and then doing lots of partnering with all kinds of NGOs and missions groups uh, just felt like it was too good to pass up. Felt like where God was calling us next, even though there's lots of snow on the ground. Um, <laughs> and so we moved up, uh, I guess it's almost like two and a half years ago. So been, yeah, and really grateful. It's super fun. I love working with our students and work, work with all kinds of partners and, and really stim- stimulating and it's so fun to get to see them going out to to do good work um along the way yeah that that's a really really cool um way of learning is it the only one in the united states that offers this type of program it's the only kind of it's the only one that's uh faith-based it's christian and has this disaster focus as well and so um there are some other christian uh, master's programs that do preparation for development like we do as well but the way we have the faith and have the disaster as well as the the development long term as far as we know you know it's unique in the in this space and so and then we also love having other colleagues who are doing in the christian space who are have undergraduate programs and graduate programs who are uh, preparing people for related areas but also definitely we have this this uh, little niche you know that we try to try to do our work in during all of this experience and, and the traveling and the people you're meeting, I'm sure you've come across some really difficult situations and maybe even some really hopeful situations. Is there a particular story or encounter that just kind of always sticks around with you? There's the one that comes came to mind. I wrote about it in one of my books, but um, one that comes to mind because I think you would relate. And I think if people think about you know, working in Haiti or if they think about after disasters, like how do people make it through? Yeah. And this was one of my experiences pretty early on in Haiti. I think it was in the first year, first six months that just helped me and kind of blew me away and has kept me learning. So I was, uh, there was a flood out in Gonaive 
uh, that happened. I think over a thousand people died or around a thousand people died because a hurricane had come through and it didn't hit directly, but it, you know, dumped a lot of rain. There's kind of this plains and valleys under the hills that go nice. So it was a horrible situation. And then the flooding really stayed, stayed around there. And, you know, the, there wasn't infrastructure and equipment to get things in. So not a lot of people were getting in a lot, not a lot of people were getting out as far as we understood. So people in Gonaive were really isolated and, uh, and, you know, it just felt awful because you're there and you're kind of close, but there was nothing we could do as well. Like we're this grassroots education organization. And so went with some Haitian colleagues and we did a seminar nearby kind of working with churches near go naive and then afterwards it was during a politically volatile time so afterwards we're going we wait to, to hop on a tap tap like a big tap tap to go back into port-au-prince and everyone's a little nervous you want to get back before dusk just because it's a little dangerous on the streets mm-hmm. at that time and they can't get on can't get on and finally this truck comes by probably like 60 of us could pile into uh and get in the back and you're kind of stuffed in there and I'm on a little slice of wood bench and, you know, there are rails going down the middle and there are chickens underfoot. And, you know, just like the crowded thing, you know, we're bouncing along and people are talking about go naive, you know, from being there, like on public transportation, you know, and this is, you know, people we're all talking with each other and there's like conversation. And this one guy, uh, they're talking about go naive, how bad it is. Not many people are getting in or out. And then this one young man said, Oh, I'm from Go Naive. I just got out, you know, and so he must have like done a hike for a lot of miles through muck and mud. And then he told the story of like escaping, going up onto the second floor and the water coming in. He left his mom and his sisters there. And, uh, you know, just this awful story and know how much suffering he's trying to get out to get help to get back to them, get some supplies for them. So we're bouncing along towards Port-au-Prince and the whole front half of this truck kind of goes quiet as we're listening to him tell his story now and he says and he looks down at himself see and he says oh like like even these clothes the clothes i'm wearing like they're the only clothes i have i've been wearing them since the flood came it was like six days ago and he keeps talking and you know a lot of people on that truck would have been living on the edge of survival under two dollars a day they're out in the sun all day selling things from their garden to barely make enough money to provide for their families he tells that story and a, a man reaches into like a bag and pulls out a shirt for him after he said this and hands him a, a new t-shirt. And then the market women say, Oh, take off your old shirt, put this new shirt on. So he does that as we're going along. And then he, someone else says, reaches into a bag and pulls out a pair of shorts and gives it to him. And someone else like has an extra pair of flip-flops and then the market women started like one or two of the market women kind of got up and they started going around to everybody and they're like squeezing along as we're driving and they're going from person to person and saying like just give five goods or 10 goods or 50 goods give something to help this guy and i was going along and i'm kind of watching and people who have almost nothing are giving to this man who has nothing and they're going and every almost every single person you know, gives to help him out. I give something to help him out um, along the way. And she comes back, this market woman puts a big handful of like fists of full of money of bills and coins into his hands. And as they're going around, I'm thinking about Jesus story of the, the widow, you know, giving a couple of coins in the temple as this example of, of what it means to give, what it means to live faithfully. She puts this bills and coins into his hand. He's kind of stuffs it into his pockets and he, starts to say 
um, Pakone and Pakone Kisapumdi. I, I don't know. I don't even know what to say. And then he starts to cry a little. And then he's just standing there holding onto the rail and he's weeping, you know, the generosity of people there. And it felt for me like in that moment, this insight, kind of going back to your question, like this insight of how do people make it through? And uh, a lot of it's what happens from outside. And we want to feel the responsibility of happening what's outside but we never want to forget that a lot of how people get it through is by helping each other you know and just being really generous with each other uh and being um being able to to step up and in faith you know not knowing even where their next meal is coming from helping someone who's who's uh so stretched stretched out so i feel like that you know that felt like that rickety truck sort of turned into holy ground just getting to see and experience a moment like that and so it's been something that i've carried through as well just my own life of how am i being generous how am i helping in the people in those situations and then also when we do this kind of work never assuming that we're kind of going in uh, as people to help or save or rescue others but we're going in to partner with uh with people who are are helping their own communities and care about their own communities and want to make a difference and yeah. that's sort of one of the stories that that sticks with me along the way those those special stories, those moments that I think um, the majority of the public, you know, those aren't things that are like, you know, all over the media um, where, you know, floods and cholera and whatnot are, but I think those stories are so special. Give us the quick rundown on your, your books where um, we can get them. Yeah, it's been great. Just so like a way for me to think and pray and try to understand things along the path. So first book was following Jesus through the eye of the needle. So that's about this first two and a half years uh, living in Haiti and kind of stepping along the way and making this big transition. And you know, so kind of a memoir, travelogue kind of a uh, book. And then I wrote a book called Aftershock, Searching for Honest Faith When Your World is Shaken. So right after the earthquake. Uh, wrote the, that book sort of in those six months about the response and so it's kind of a about the being on the ground in Haiti but also other experience I've had and sort of this theological wrestling with the questions of faith and doubt and suffering and mm -hmm. and how do we think about that so I've been really grateful that that's encouraged uh, for me it was really important in my faith kind of doing this kind of work and it's been encouraging that I think a lot of people have found it helpful as they wrestle with some of those questions. Mm -hmm. Then wrote a book called Slow Kingdom Coming, uh, Practices for Doing Justice, Loving Mercy, and Walking Humbly in the World. And so that's uh, these five practices of how do we do this kind of work in a way that are, is both faithful, so they're kind of spiritual practices, but also practical of how do we do this. It's hard to do this kind of work well, and we want to be really thoughtful. And so these five practices, I think, that can help us to think about this work, do this kind of work in, in, a, in a way that's thoughtful and has this kind of virtuous cycle of reflection and learning along the way. And then the fourth book is uh, from a couple of years ago called You Welcomed Me, Loving Refugees and Immigrants Because God First Loved Us. And, you know, kind of saw what was happening in the country and how the narrative was switching where a lot of Christians and were becoming, you know, there had been not consensus, but closer to consensus, like as a church and as Christians, like we should welcome refugees as a country to suddenly that, you know, was increasingly not the case in some areas. And so, so just wanted to write a book that, makes the arguments and also leads to personal reflection and can be a resource for churches on how do we welcome well and how do we even think about this question 
are we for refugees or against them, which suddenly became a question, you know, in the national conversation. And, and the answer is we have to be for them, God's for them, and we have to be for them. Uh, and so then kind of wrestle with, wrestle with and just try to lay out that I think there's this beautiful opportunity in welcoming, uh, welcoming refugees and immigrants. And that that's part of the story that, that we get to live when we're living our best story. And your, your master's program, if there's listeners today that are intrigued by this, and this seems like something that would be um, the right choice for them, uh, how would they go about getting involved in that? Yeah, I would love to talk with anybody who's interested in that, uh, including you, if you're going to want to do the, <laughs> come do the master's with us. No, yeah, I, but... <laughs> I remember seeing uh, that, that career change for you. And I was like, this is pretty cool. At some point, I would, I would love to do that. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be fantastic. Um, so if you go to wheaton.edu slash HDL, um, get you there, or you can just, uh, if you Google Wheaton College Masters Humanitarian Disaster Leadership, some combination of those uh, those words. But we'd love it. And it's a program that people can do in one year on campus. You know, so you this one yeah. intense year where people are, you know, more coming out of undergrad or seeing this career shift. But there's you can also do the program where you're just on campus for two weeks, uh, one week at the very beginning, and then you do two years where everything is online. And then you do one week together at the very end. And so so we love having both kinds. I love having the students on campus who are doing this program. And it's a great transition and intense way to move forward. But then we have people, and right now we have students in Dominican Republic, all over the U.S. We have students in Canada. We have students in who are doing the program right now I'm from Uganda, actually from Haiti, um, from... Um, Liberia, we have Taiwanese students, you know, so we have students all over the world who are part of both the on-campus cohort and who are going through the online program. So we love being able to do it, you know, if you come join us here, but also if you want to stay warm, uh, you can, but if you're kind of already doing this work and it's a way to kind of be thinking about and doing this work along the way, you don't want to press pause on that, then it's a great way to join with other students and faculty who are helping you to keep thinking about how to keep getting better at at uh, doing this work. And so we like having that option as well. Yeah, that's great. I remember when I was uh, looking at, at different social work programs and being frustrated um, at the lack of like ability to do it online. And I'm sitting there going, I'm in Haiti, I'm doing the right. work. Like, <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> let, me, yeah. let me learn the theory behind it. Um, so that's yeah, exactly because awesome. it's, it's a great way to to do it like both ways are great but yeah it's so fun the conversations that the online students have you know because they're because they're in the midst of doing it you know it's really rich and then you've got you're doing a project and you're with you know two two three people and they're all in different countries and doing different kind of work makes it a great uh, experience yeah i love that i was always like i have i can just walk on my door and have enough yeah, exactly. for, a, for a six page paper so exactly it was exactly. always good to have that inspiration this has been incredibly informative. Um, if our listeners have somehow zoned out for you know the last half hour and they're just woke up, what? What? <laughs> Wake up! Wake up! Not get an A plus in humanitarian. <laughs> get a zero. Um, but what? What would be one thing that uh, that you would want them to take with them today? I think it's that we want to when we serve other people. Uh, we want to do it in a way that uses our hearts and our smarts, we say sometimes, you know, and so I think sometimes we can feel paralyzed and, you know, if we're conscious of it's hard to help well sometimes, 
then we can kind of feel paralyzed. That's not a great option because then we're not helping other people. Or we can say, okay, it's it's so complicated. I'm just going to be naive and I'm just going to plow ahead and do it. But there's this other uh, middle way, like this path of doing it. And I know you've worked on this as well, Kelly, and I think your foundation's working on it. But like, how do we, you know, have our hearts engaged, have our faith engaged, but also, you know, keep on doing the hard work mm -hmm. uh, to help well. And I think it's a really beautiful path and it's a path of discipleship and it's a path of, of getting better at helping other people. Um, and so I hope people... Uh, when we have these conversations, sometimes I'm worried like, oh, no, we're just making it sound complicated to help well. But I, I think what we're, what we're saying is, no, like helping, doing that little extra work of helping well and listening a little harder, maybe moving a little bit slower, mm -hmm. I think is something that benefits you and it's going to benefit the people uh, who you're, you help. So we actually just we launched a podcast and a blog recently called The Better Samaritan Okay. With, with Christianity Today. And the idea is this quote from Martin Luther King Jr. He talked about, you know, helping the person who's robbed and by the side of the road, but also you want to have concern for making the road safer, the Jericho road safer for those who are going to come after. So I think that's the invitation to all of us. Like, how do we, how do we do this? We want to help the people in front of us, uh, but we also want to make the road safer. So people who come down the road later have a better a better path ahead. And if we use our hearts and our smarts, I think there's a really beautiful way to love God and love our neighbors um, and to do good work. Mm, yeah, that's so well said. And, and that's encouraging because I think um, we've all definitely been in those places where, where we see the problems, we hear the problems, um, and it can, can become paralyzing. Absolutely. Even, even when you're in it and doing the work and in the mm -hmm. environment or, you know, in the trenches with people, so to speak, it can definitely become overwhelming. So it's encouraging to know that there's this whole community out there of like-minded individuals who are willing to put in the hard work and slow down and maybe not, you know, get the, um, you know, 10 hundred wells built this year, but maybe 500 really great wells where they need to be built. Uh, so that's really encouraging to know that, that this community is out there. So we appreciate that. And that podcast sounds really cool too. Yeah, it's fun. And thanks for doing this podcast. It's just so fun to reconnect with you in a totally different place via Zoom. But yeah, I appreciate you and the conversation. Look forward to staying in touch with you. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much, Kent. We can't wait for you to get involved. As always, all relevant links and contact information can be found at lapointfoundation.org. Until next time, keep on fighting for justice.